Welcome to Redeemer's Church Weekly Message Podcast, where our mission is simple. We are a church that is passionate about loving God and loving people. And now, we hope you enjoyed this week's message by Pastor Caleb Schaefer. We are in the final week of a series that began several weeks ago on the book, Tale of Three Kings. And uh, we had those books available for everyone, hopefully that you got a copy of that. Hopefully you've read it not just one time, but multiple times. Uh, we had two book discussion times, and those were really just great times of discussing the book. But in week one, we focused on the life of Saul. Uh, in week two, we focused on the life of Absalom. Uh, in week three, we kind of focused on the life of Jesus. <laughs> so really the book should be called the tale of four kings or at least our series uh, last week was about king jesus and that was totally fine uh, but we wanted to kind of finish the series uh, this week by talking about the life of king david the life of king david and so uh, with that being said if you've been involved in this series you know that there's been a question that has been the center of every sermon the first week is is there a Saul among us? The second week is, uh, was, is there an Absalom among us? And so this final week, it will be, is there a David among us? Is there a David among us? So let's open up with prayer. Father, we just thank you so much uh, just for just these times of worship with you, Lord. Just that, that, that presence of God that's just so sweet and so peaceful. And so, God, we, we pray, Lord, though we have moved into your word, we, we, we pray that you would be present here. We pray that we would feel that, that presence as we read your word, as we go into your word today. And God, I pray that as we open up our hearts, that you would speak again to us, Lord. We thank you that your Holy Spirit connects the dots and puts the puzzle pieces together to speak to us what we need to know so we commit that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a question for you all. Do you have a nighttime routine? Anybody got a nighttime routine? Okay, anybody not have a nighttime routine? Hold on. I want you to know something. The only weird one in the group raised his hand. Pastor Dwight, <laughs> I could have I put money. I could have put money on that. But for everyone else that's normal, we have a nighttime routine. So what does your nighttime routine consist of? Well, in the Schaefer household, uh, it usually consists of Zeke and Ella going to bed around 8.30. And uh, because Gideon is a teenager, or about to be, uh, he's going to turn 12 in March, he gets to stay up a little bit later. And so sometimes when he stays up a little bit later, we spend that time, Allison and I, hanging out with him and kind of watching movies or shows that the younger ones couldn't really watch. We've recently introduced him to the Lord of the Rings series. Anybody a fan of the Lord of the Rings series? And so uh, he's been watching that. We've been watching that. It's been a great time of kind of reminiscing and, and watching that. Now, I will say this, that if you have a like an LED, not even an LED, LED TV, but if you have like a 4K or even an 8K TV, uh, you will find out that as you watch the Lord of the Rings again on that TV, that things become extremely unrealistic. And it's so saddening because when you first watch it, you're like, this was amazing CGI. But when you watch it on a, a for real high def, you're like, whoa, that looks really bad. Um, so some things don't age well in that regard. But so we've watched Lord of the Rings. We'll watch a couple other things. We've introduced them to the Hobbit series. I said, it's not like the Lord of the Rings. Can I get an amen? Anybody feel that way about that trilogy? Okay. 
It's like, why did they make it three movies? It was one book. Um, but anyways, I feel like they ruined it. Sidetrack, sorry. Um, anyways, we'll go to bed and, uh, you know, so Gideon will stay up with us a little bit. He'll go to bed around 930 and then Allison and I will hang out. We'll, then we get to watch the shows that he can't even watch or the things that it was. It was so funny yesterday. Um, Gideon, I'm watching TV. Uh, Zeke and Ella are, are in bed. Allison and I are in the living room watching TV and Gideon's like starting to request what he wants to watch. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is the only time in every day where we, Allison and I get to decide what we're going to watch. This is not about you. So like, you're going to sit here and just watch whatever we're watching. Okay. Like, this is not about you right now. He's like, let's watch this. Or that. I'm like, no, you can, you can watch your eyelids and go to bed early. So anyway, so he'll go to bed and then sometimes we'll hang out. Uh, Allison will sc scroll through her throne or her phone. Same with me, blah, blah, blah. But more often than not, every night, my nighttime routine is putting on Seinfeld. Anybody a Seinfeld fan? It's a throwback. I get it. But I will put on Seinfeld. And how many of you know that there are some shows and movies that are anointed to put you to sleep? <laughs> like if you're taking a Sunday nap, you're like, I'm going to put this on. And it's going to be a matter of time before I roll over, I'm knocked out. Well, Seinfeld is one of my favorite shows, but it's got that anointing for me. I'll put it on, and it's only a matter of moments before I doze off to sleep. But when I was thinking about this message this morning, what came to my mind is one of my favorite episodes from Seinfeld. And it's an episode called The Opposite. And in this episode, one of the main characters, George Costanza, has found that every single natural instinct that he has fails. Just every one of them. And so they're at breakfast and him and Jerry and George are sitting together and George is just talking about this. And Jerry gives him this idea. He says, well, if every one of your natural instincts fails to fulfill whatever you want, then the exact opposite of that natural instinct would have to be right. And so the whole episode is George Costanza doing the exact opposite of his natural instinct and how it just works out in his favor. And when I was thinking about the character of Saul and Absalom and the character of David, we could end the sermon here. How did David's legacy happen to be so different from Saul and Absalom? Here's the simple answer. He did the exact opposite of what Saul and Absalom did. <laughs> in almost every situation and circumstance of his life, David did the exact opposite of Saul and Absalom. And listen to me this morning, it was for that reason that the legacy of David's life was so different from that of Saul and Absalom's, which brings me to my first question for every single person that happens to be in the room and happens to be streaming it today. What do you want your legacy with people to be? What do you want your legacy with people to be? By the way, that's really what your legacy is about. It's not about what you want your legacy to be. Because legacy has nothing to do with you unless it's connected to other people. Your legacy is this. It's what do you want the memories to be that are etched in people's minds about you. That's what legacy is. Legacy are the memories that you leave with people. Legacy are the, 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 the things that people think about when your name is brought up. What do you want 
the memories to be that are etched in people's minds about you. See, there's more to legacy than this. If you're closely related to family, there may be inheritance and passing along of tangible things. But for everyone, listen, legacy will all be, what the legacy that we leave all people, no matter what, are memories. Doesn't matter if you're, if you're a stranger, a neighbor, a coworker, boss, family member, friend, we will all leave a legacy with these people. So what do you want your legacy to be with people, period? Let me say it this way. Do you want people to remember you with fondness or be glad that they can forget you? Do you want people, I, I, when I think about that, I think about the Apostle Paul, that when he, he actually parted ways with a group of people and it said that the people were weeping in his departure. There was such a, a legacy that he left with people that they were sad that he would never come around. Do you want people to be, uh, do you want people to remember you with fondness or do you want people to be glad they can forget you? Do you want people to wish you were still here or be glad that they can move on? This is the type of, 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 of opportunity that we have with all people. And when we look at David's life, we see that David had a different legacy than that of Saul and Absalom, especially when we look at the end of his life. In 1 Chronicles, when we look at Saul's end, in chapter 10, verse 14, I think this is a very interesting note, that this scripture specifically says that God killed Saul. Whoa. God killed Saul. Listen to this, verse 14. Therefore... God killed Saul and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. That's a sobering thought. The author of Chronicles who, who wrote this said, concluded that Saul di died not because of his battle wounds, but because God allowed him to be killed because of his disobedience. This is what Saul is remembered before. No one is thinking about Saul in positive terms. Everyone is thinking about Saul because of what his failures were, what his disobedience was, the way he was as a king, and, and how it, not, it didn't work out. Now, when we look at Absalom's end, in 2 Samuel 18, verses 9 through 18, we find that Absalom dies because of his pride and ambition. This is his legacy. He is caught hanging from a tree because of his vanity and his speared to death in his rebellion against his father. This is Absalom's legacy. You see Saul's legacy, and now you see Absalom's. So you see what Absalom is remembered for. Remember that Absalom is not remembered for good things. He's remembered for what you, you should avoid doing. It's interesting because there's actually a note in, in 2 Samuel 18, verse 18, that's really interesting. It alludes to the fact that the only reason we remember Absalom is because of this. Verse 18 says this, Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. He set it up in the king's valley. He wasn't even a king. You know what that tells me? This is crazy. This is what it tells me of Absalom's legacy. It tells us that there are those that are remembered because of the positive impressions they have made on others. And then there are those who are only remembered because of their own vain attempts to never let people forget them. Oh, that's, that's tough. 
Do I need to say that again? Okay. Because, you know, like sometimes when we get in the presence of God, like it just causes us to just kind of veg out like that was so good. You're just so peaceful and relaxing. And then people say stuff and you're like, yeah. Like, no. What this tells us, listen, is that there are those that leave positive impressions with people and those people remember them. But then there are also those who are only remembered because of their vain attempts to never let people forget them. Absalom built a monument in the King's Valley, although he was not even a king, because he wanted to make sure that he was cemented in history. But how many of you know that he wasn't even the rightful heir, so he would have never been remembered had he built a monument to himself to be remembered as a king? See, make no mistake about it, Absalom would have been forgotten about had he not tried to solidify his place in history by building a monument to himself. So what do you want your legacy with people to be? But David's end was totally different. And I love the way that the scripture says that David was remembered. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 28, it says this. And I projected it because I want you to see it. This is David at the end of his life. Then David died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor and his son Solomon reigned in his place. David rode off into the sunset. That was David's end. He rode off into the sunset, breathed his last breath, and I love what the last adjective is, full of days, riches, and honor. David died with his honor intact. How many of you know Saul and Absalom didn't? He died with his honor intact which means that people were mourning his lost people. He had etched in the memories of people good things, positive impressions, that he was honored in his death. So what was it about the way that David lived his life that caused his legacy to be so different than that of Saul and Absalom? The first thing is this, there's five, but the first is this, David was humble. David was humble. I think I said this in the first week when, in regards to Saul, but everyone has two, char- two choices regarding humility. You either humble yourself or you let God humble you, and you don't want the second option. David chose humility. Where Saul and Absalom were ambitious, arrogant, and prideful, David was humble. See, this humility, now this is an important thing for everyone, but this humility was not just before God because everybody claims that. Everybody claims to be humble before God. But it was also demonstrated before men, and I would even argue that if you claim to be humble before God, but you're not humble before men, how can you be humble before God? Like, I believe that you demonstrate you, your humility before God in the way that you are humble before people. And I would argue that if you aren't humble before God, how can you be humble before, or before men? How can you humble be, be humble before God? Because this is the thing about pride. Pride is not something that you can compartmentalize. It is something that will leak out into every area of your life. So we see that David was humble in the way that he submitted to Saul's rule, even after he was anointed king. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 16, 13. David is anointed 
king by Samuel, and literally 10 verses later, we see David found in the king's palace, but he's not sitting on the throne. He's serving the king. He is the king, but there's still a king, and so because that king still exists, he finds himself serving there. See, David demonstrated a life of voluntary submission. As the book, The Tale of Three Kings, writes, I love this, in chapter 17, it says, the clearest memory... That's legacy. I have of my king when we lived in the caves is that his was a life of submission. Yes, David showed me submission, not authority. Isn't that interesting? He showed me submission, not authority. David demonstrated a life of voluntary submission. So this is an example of his humility under authority, but we also see his humility in authority, and we see it that this in this way, that where Saul saw prophets, that's Samuel, as someone getting in the way of his agenda, David saw the prophets as God-ordained accountability. There was a clear difference between the way that David dealt with the prophets and the way that Saul dealt with the prophets. We see this humility before men while in authority in the way that he honored these prophets. David demonstrated humility and authority, and I think this is important for anybody in a position of authority, by welcoming people to speak into his life, even if what they said wasn't what he wanted to hear. You know, there are people that I know, and there's a tendency for all of us to only gather around ourselves the voices that affirm everything that we do. And I know of people that have come to me asking for advice or asking for a counsel, and they've already, how many of you have ever had this? They've already made up their minds about what they're going to do. And so all they're doing is looking for someone to affirm the decision they already want to make. And if you don't affirm it, then you are disposable. They just find somebody else to be a yes man for the decision that they want to make. David didn't do that. David did not dispose of people that were going to speak into his life correction. He embraced them. And we see this example in the way that he humbles himself to the prophet Nathan's rebuke, and he humbles himself to the prophet Gad's rebuke. And we'll we'll see more on that later, but those are the two examples. He embraced the correction of others in spite of his position of authority. And I love that because David never outgrew accountability. He always welcomed it. He always allowed it to be present. Where Saul saw his authority as the means to do whatever he wanted, David saw his authority as something that he was accountable to God for. And as a result, he allowed voices to be in his life that would speak correction when it was needed. Listen to this. You want to live the David life and have a similar outcome in your legacy you will have to be someone that humbles yourself to the correction of those around you. You will have to. You will have to not only welcome that, but embrace it when it comes. Let me just say it this way, a guaranteed way to become like Saul is to be the type of person that never admits you are wrong or even justifies everything that you do. I'm just telling you, it happens. David just wasn't just humble before men, he was also humble before God. We never see 
David, when you look at the whole of David's story in Scripture, we never see David glory in his own achievements. In every victory, David gave God the glory, and he did this because David's always give God the credit because they know where their abilities really come from. Matter of fact, let me take it a step further. They never forget where those abilities come from. How many of you have had successes in your life and in the moment you gave God the credit and then as the successes continue to come, you start to take credit for yourself? There's this subtle transition that can take place in your heart. David never forgot where his help and his abilities really came from. He always gave God the credit. We see this in 1 Chronicles 17, 16. I love this passage of scripture. You can write it down. But this is when he goes to build the temple after years of peace. And this is crazy. He has the heart to build a temple for the Lord. God tells him through, I believe it's Nathan, that he's not the one to build the temple, but that his son will build the temple at one point. And this is David's response to that. In, in 1 Chronicles 17, 16, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? This is years into his reign, and he still has this humility to know. He knows who gave him the ability to do everything that he did. We see this again in 1 Samuel 17, 36. David speaking to Saul before he fights Goliath, and Jill already mentioned it. But David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, what's interesting about that is uh, who fought those bears and those lions? David did. But David knew I wasn't really fighting by myself. God gave me the ability and the capacity to overcome, and he will do the same thing with Goliath as well. He knew, he recognized, he will deliver me from the hand. See, David knew in every victory that he had God's help. He had God's help. And it was this perspective that I believe prevented David's victories from going to his head. Another area we see that David's humility works in his favor is that it protected his heart from becoming a man offended at his enemies. See, as the book says in his trials with Saul, listen to this, what can a man especially a young man, do when the king decides to use him for target practice, throwing spears. This is uh, talking about Saul throwing spears at him. First of all, he must pretend he cannot see the spears, even when they're coming straight at him. Second, he must learn to duck very quickly. Last, he must pretend that nothing happened. You can easily tell when someone has been bit by a, or hit by a spear. He turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. He discovered three things that prevented him from ever being hit. One, never learn anything about the fashionable, easily mastered art of spear throwing. Two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. And three, keep your mouth tightly closed. And in this way, spears will never touch you even if they pierce your heart. It was, it was David's humility that allowed him to remain unoffended even at his enemies. Now, 
Look at the opposite. Look at pride. Pride will make you take everything personal. It'll make you take everything personal because when you're self-absorbed, you don't think about other people. And I think the thing about David that was so significant is that even when Saul was throwing spears at him, he didn't take the spears being thrown at him personal. There was something in him that was protected from that. I believe that David was probably someone that was like, what is hurt in Saul that is causing him to throw spears at me? I believe that he was one that was like, this is more a Saul problem than a David problem. And he recognized that, and it, was, it, was, it allowed him to not get offended in the moment. And we see how th- this, this crazy thing about David, how he remained undefended, we see it even after Saul was dead. He honored him by not only mourning his death, he wrote a song in mourning his death, and, and he also, years later after he became king, he allowed Saul's grandson to sit at his royal table and have uh, meals with him every single day until he died. We see this. This is crazy. In 2 Samuel 9, Saul, or David comes, has somebody come in, and he asks them this question. This is so crazy. He says, are there any in the house of Saul that remain that I may show kindness to? That's different. That's crazy. Look at this legacy. So you would never do that if you were offended. So the second thing we see about David that is different from Saul and Absalom is that David was repentant. Where Saul's and Absalom's make excuses to justify their choices or blame their choices on others, David's own their choices, and not only own the choices, but they face the consequences and they repent. See, David's are not perfect. But David's don't make excuses. David's own their faults. See, when Nathan rebuked David for sin with Bathsheba, what was his response? 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Saul would have said, she shouldn't have been up on the balcony bathing. (laughs) It's her fault, not mine. Like, don't you have a bathroom for that? David was like, I've sinned against the Lord. In other words, I know that I had Uriah murdered, which happened to be Bathsheba's husband. I know that I violated Bathsheba, and I'm not dismissing both of those. But I also know that at the end of the day, this is a violation and a sin against Jesus, the sin against God. He recognized that. Psalm 51, you and you alone have I sinned against. The very psalm that he wrote in mourning his own sin and depravity with Bathsheba. But we see this again when Gad rebukes David in 2 Samuel 24, 17. says, Then David spoke to the Lord, saying, I love this, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. Please let, this is David begging God, please let your hand be against me and my father's house. He doesn't just repent, but he He owns his faults, and he embraces the consequences. So David was repentant. Number three, probably one of my favorites, David showed mercy to undeserving men. He showed mercy to undeserving men. 
I love what my wife said when we were talking about this point a couple weeks ago. She said, David never fought to defend himself. He only fought to defend God. And, and in that, he showed mercy to undeserving men. See, he could have killed Saul multiple times, but he didn't. He could have killed Absalom, but didn't. When David was fleeing uh, Jerusalem during Absalom's rebellion, a man from the house of Saul named Shimei came out to curse and throw, David's, uh, throw stones at him, and David's men wanted to kill the man, but David had mercy on an undeserving man. He actually, this is crazy, this man comes out and he curses David when David is leaving because Absalom is coming into Jerusalem to take his throne. That's rightfully David's. And this man is cursing David, and people come to him, his army, his generals come to him and say, hey, do you want me to go ahead and take care of this light work real quick? And he says, no, because God might actually be speaking through him. And so the whole way this guy is cursing him as he's leaving and he's embracing, he showed mercy to undeserving men, which, by the way, is very interesting because when you look at Jesus, Jesus is often referred to as son of David. And it's followed specifically with this. Have what? Have mercy on us. Jesus had the same reputation of showing mercy to undeserving people. And we see this over and over and over again when Jesus lived out his life. But I believe it was directly connected to David's same pattern of showing mercy to undeserving people. He never showed mercy to God's enemies, but always to his own enemies. And there was a difference there. David recognized that people fighting against him does not necessarily equal they're fighting against God. And he was able to make the delineation on who should be fought, but who should be, who should be given uh, mercy. And it reminds me of this, Matthew 5.44, this is Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now watch this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You demonstrate your identity as a son and daughter of God in showing mercy to undeserving people. This is how David operated. This is how Jesus operated. And how, how did David ever, how was David ever able to show mercy to undeserving people? Here's why. Number four. David trusted God with his life. Do you, do you really trust God with, with your life? Now, that's something, honestly, you almost need to declare every single morning. You don't know what's coming. You don't know who's coming. But I believe that David was able to show mercy to undeserving people because David trusted God with his life. David never picked fights unless God picked David to fight them. He never picked fights. You know who picked fights? Saul. You know who picked fights? Absalom. David never picked fights unless God picked David to fight him. Because David trusted God to fight for him. And how many of you know that there's only so much fighting that you can do for yourself? There's only so... There are people that live their whole life with an enemy. It's like, how can you have that many enemies? 
How can you be that hated by, I, I love um, I, I, this, I know this totally off wall, but like I love, I, I grew up right around this area. There was, I, I don't know if you know this, but there was like no country music being played around here. <laughs> like it was all rap and hip hop. And so like, uh, that's what I grew up in. And in hip hop rap culture, everybody's an enemy. Everybody's rap battling. Everybody has like the whole 90s rap game was enemies. East Coast versus West Coast. And it was all that way. There are people that live their whole life with enemies. David only picked fights. He only fought fights that God picked him to fight. Otherwise, that's why, that's why you can read his story. You can be like, man, he was like, why was he not fighting at that point? He should have fought. That's because God said, you're not fighting right now. I'll fight for you. I'll vindicate you in the middle of this enemy. This is not your fight. I think part of our journey is having to recognize which fight is ours and which is not. When am I supposed to lay down my arms and say, okay, God, you fight for me. I trust you with my life. Or, okay, this is something I need to fight for. David was able to have the discernment to pick between the two. He trusted God with his life. I love how the book communicates this truth. When David was being pursued by Absalom and considering what he would do, it says this, that David said, it's better that I be defeated, even killed, than to learn the ways of a Saul or the ways of an Absalom. The kingdom is not that valuable. Let Absalom have it, if that be the Lord's will. I did not fight to be king, and I will not fight to remain king. May God come tonight and take the throne, the kingship, and his anointing from me. I seek his will, not his power. I repeat, I desire his will more than I desire a position of leadership. He may be through with me. I will do what I did under Saul. I will leave the destiny of the kingdom of God not in his hands, but in God's hands alone. The throne is not mine, not to have, not to take, not to protect, and not to keep. Wow. He trusted God with his life. You can only make that decision when, that's, when you trust God. You know, it's interesting about self-preservation. I've been contemplating this scripture. Jesus said... Um, He said, whoever, whoever seeks his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. And there is a measure of seeking to preserve yourself that in the self-preservation you actually lose your life. I, you see that with Saul. Saul was seeking to preserve the throne, preserve his rule, and what ended up happening? He lost his life. See, self-preservation is often the primary pursuit of those who don't trust God with their life. But David's trust God with their life no matter the outcome. Where Saul and Absalom took matters into their own hands, David placed his life in God's hands. We could go on and on and on. I, I got one more point, y'all. One more point. We could go on and on and on. I could have 10 more points about how David was different from Saul and Absalom. But what does it really come down to? Do you want to know how David was able to be different from Saul and Absalom? Anybody? Yes. He was just a better person. 
No, I'm kidding. You're like, <laughs> you're like well, there's no hope there. Thanks. Appreciate it. No, he wasn't just a better person because he has the same choices that every single one of us is, or one of us has. Here's the fifth point. This is how David's legacy was different because he was a man after God's own heart, period. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, what does that actually mean? In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, we actually see that Paul says in a sermon that God had found in David a man after his own heart. You know what's interesting is that when Saul was anointed king by Samuel, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he was transformed into a different man. You know what's interesting about David's story? There is no phrase that says he was transformed into a different man. It says that the Spirit of the Lord came on the man that already existed, which means that God had already found a man after his heart as a shepherd, not because of his promotion. Are you a person after God's own heart simply because you're now in a position that that demands that from you? Or are you a person that is after his heart in your nine to five, in the, in the, in the unseen, are you a person after his, heart? It's, it, after his heart? David, God found a person after his heart. See, unlike Saul, God didn't have to make him fit to be king. I would like to suggest to you today that it wasn't David's choices that made him a person after God's heart. It was the other way around. It was because David was a man after God's own heart that he had those choices and that he made those choices. Everything that we see here, it wasn't because God made him that, it was because he already was that. And those are the choices that flow out of a person that is after God's heart. David's not better than you, he, he's not better than us. I know every one of us, when we get to heaven, it's like, let's see Jesus and then David, right? Like we all want to talk to these different characters but every single one of us has the same choices right in front of us that, that were before Absalom, Saul, and David. We all have those choices. But what it all comes down to is this. In every situation and circumstance of your life, will you seek to please the Lord? How are you a person after God's own heart? That is the primary thought in your life in situations, circumstances. No matter what comes, no matter what happens to me, how can I please the Lord in this situation? How can I honor him? How can I glorify him? How can I please the Lord? First of all, how do you become a person after God's own heart? Here's, here's the first thing. It starts with giving God your heart, okay? If you're in the room and you've never given your life to Jesus, you can't be a person after God's own heart unless you first give him your heart. That is the foundational step. But for those that have already given their heart to God, given their heart to Jesus, how do you become a person after God's own heart? Here's how it happens. You become whatever you pursue. You become whatever you pursue. You know what I, I, I've noticed, realized recently about worship and why worship was so amazing is there's, a, it, is, it is almost mystical and spiritual to me, but I'm just telling you that when you get into the presence of God, there isn't, amount of, there isn't a amount of principles from scripture that you could memorize to transform you the way the presence of God does. There's something about 
in the middle of a worship environment that can change you. It can change you. And notice, notice why David was a man after God's own heart, because he was a worshiper. If you're a man in the room and you struggle with worship, but you want to be like God, you better get over your struggle with worship. Because it, it's not about you. It's about what God wants to mold in you as you lift your hands up and you kneel. Because I'm telling you, the posture is going to deal with your pride. It's going to deal with all the things in your heart that need to change. You're not soft if you're intimate with God as a man. It's not about that. It's about what God is about to do inside of you as you yield to him and, tr and the transformation that takes place in an atmosphere where worship is present. So many, so many men, I'm dealing with the men because honestly, worship and intimacy is natural for women. It is. It's more, I'll say it's more natural for women than it is for men because we sit in this room and we're like, the men are like, when are we going to get to the meat? I need something to chew on. I need something hard. Worship is not hard, right? But God needs to shape you in worship in a way that all the principles of the word of God could never do. It, you can memorize every principle, every scripture, and I'm just telling you, you get into the presence of God, and the presence of God will circumvent that transformation that you're trying to attain on your own. David, what, the reason why God had found a man that was already after his heart is because David was a worshiper in the wilderness all by himself, writing songs all alone. You can either be lonely or alone with God. And David chose to be alone with God in the middle of the wilderness when it was just him and the sheep. There's only, there's only so many conversations you can have with dogs and sheep, y'all. When you're all here all by yourself. David chose, I'm, I could be lonely, or I'm going to be alone with him. And he started to write songs. And I believe that it was in that process that there was this heart transformation that made him the person that God had found. See, a person after God's own heart is simply someone who is sensitive to what pleases the Lord and what doesn't and seeks to please the Lord in every situation and circumstance. What's interesting about the sensitivity part is this, that when you go to the end of Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel and you see that David had taken a census, censuses by themselves are not a bad thing. But the purpose behind David taking the census is that he actually wanted to boast in his achievements and accomplishments. He wanted to have the men counted in Israel so that he could, he could glory in himself and say, man, look at my empire. And so he calls for the census to happen. The census comes back to him. You know what's amazing is this. Is there a, there's a verse that says, and David recognized that he had grieved God's heart. It didn't even require a prophet to come. He was like, I did that. Man, that didn't please him. See, this is what it means to be a person out of God's own heart. You're sensitive to what pleases God and what doesn't. And you only get that being in the presence of God. Right. See, if your heart is to be a person after God's own heart, I can guarantee the, that you will never have the legacy of Saul or Absalom nor will you, your character uh, be like that. We, I'll just say this. We will all have, guaranteed, we will all have Absalom and Saul moments, but that does not have to be the legacy that we have. We will all have Absalom lapses, Saul lapses, 
but that does not have to be our legacy if we're a person after God's own heart. Humility, repentance, giving mercy to people that don't deserve it, trusting God with your life, and being after a person after God's own heart is how David, in this sermon, how David was able to separate himself from Saul and Absalom and have an entirely different legacy than they had. So my question that I end with this morning is the same question I had with Saul and Absalom. Is there a David among us? Is there a person in the room? says, you know, I want my legacy to be different. I, when I was writing this message, I felt like this is a legacy word. It really is. What type of legacy do you want to leave with the people in your life? Will you stand with me? <laughs> Love how the, the book ends. And as we, as we take a moment for God to search our hearts, I want you to listen to this. And as we conclude this series, I'm going to share this story. This is the final words from the book. The true king, that's David, turned and walked quietly out of the throne room, out of the palace, out of the city. He walked and he walked and he walked into the arms of all men whose hearts are pure. Now listen to this. Well, dear reader, the time has come for us to say goodbye once more. I will leave you to your thoughts and to reflect on the hidden motives of your own heart. And that's how it ends. The hidden motives in your heart. You know, as we've done this series, I will say this. I've been so exposed. Anybody read the book and read about David's life and you just felt like God was just like putting a spear on things in your heart that needed transformation. Only me? Awesome. <laughs> you just like watch me get spirit up here? Awesome, thanks. Do you want to be a person after God's own heart? Well, first and foremost, you got to give him your heart if you haven't. So if you're in the room this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. That's how you start. And I'm telling you, that is the sweetest surrender you can ever make in your entire life. There is no other person more worthy of surrendering your life than to Jesus. So if you're in this room this morning and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, we're going to give you an opportunity uh, in, in a moment. The second thing is this. Is if you desire to be a person after God's own heart, if you desire to please him and seek him in every situation and circumstance, will you, will you open your hands this morning? Because one of the things that I felt when we were doing this book is that this book is not just information, it's impartation. Yeah. I, I pray, I'm, I'm going to pray right now. God, I pray for every single person in the room whose hands are open. And God, even as Paul said, he said, Beloved, I would love to be with you that I may impart to you a gift. God, as we have read this book, and as we have examined the heart of Saul, the heart of Absalom, and the heart of David, I pray that there would be a Holy Spirit impartation of that same heart that was in David, that same heart that was in Jesus. God, unto us. God, our hands are open, not because 
uh, we believe that that this really does anything, but this, our hands are open as a demonstration of the posture of our heart to say, God, I want that same heart. God, I want, when you look down into Columbus, you find a people after God's own heart and Redeemer's. You find a people of humility, you find a people of repentance, you find a people that extend mercy to undeserving people. You find a people that trust you with their life. You find a people that are after your heart that say, God, I, I pray this over every person, make us a people that are sensitive to what pleases you and what doesn't not just in a corporate example, but I'm talking about on a daily basis. God, when we find that things slip off of our tongues that don't please you, that the Holy Spirit would say, oh, and God, we would recognize it and we would be repentant of it. God, when our decisions, the actions, the hidden motives of our heart, we give to the Holy Spirit's examination. Hmm. In the same way that the Holy Spirit hovered over creation, I pray the Holy Spirit would hover over the hidden motives of our hearts. And God, that we would become a people sensitive to that which pleases you and that what doesn't. Make us people after God's own heart, Lord. And God, we thank you that we have the same spirit that was in your son, Jesus. It is in us today for that to happen. And I pray our legacy would be different. That we would be people that are remembered because of our kindness, because of our love, because of our fondness, Lord, because of our gentleness, because of the fruits of the Spirit, and not be people that others are glad to forget. But our legacy would be different, Lord. And if you're in the room and you've never given your life to Jesus, we want to give you that opportunity. It's not this crazy thing. It's a decision that you make. God, I want to give my life to you. So if that's you, will you just slip your hand up? I just want to give you that moment. Maybe there's some people online. Awesome. Thank you. Well, God, I pray, Lord Jesus, not only for those in the room, but people that are watching online that would see this and they, they know right now is the time. Right now is the time for me to give my life to Jesus. I pray they would surrender to you. God, you know what's going on in their heart. You can, you can dot every I, cross every T, put the puzzle pieces together, make the things connect. God, I thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is the one that draws people to you. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be able to do what I can't do right now, teach every single person that would give their life to Jesus what they need to know in this moment, Lord that that transformation can take place. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. If you're visiting with us, we would love, our pastoral staff would love to talk with you. But also, as Abby said in the announcement, if you've got kids, please go get them from our kids. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. We hope you were challenged, encouraged, and inspired as you listened to this teaching from God's Word. For more messages or information about our church, please go to www.redeemers.life.